Hey, this is Brian. I am re-uploading an old episode today. This is Colin Quinn, one of my first 10 guests, someone whom I have long admired, one of the best comedians, one of the best tweeters, and uh, just one of the smartest guys in in general about how the world of show business and and entertainment works. And uh, I hope you dig this episode. I'll be back with a new one next week. And now, the moment with Brian Koppelman. There is nothing but the moment. Don't you waste it on regret. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I normally do an uh, introduction in advance before my guest is here, but uh, the show business veteran, Colin Quinn, uh, showed up when I showed up. He showed up early. Was that some kind of training you had? Um, I'm always early. I'm always early. Ask anybody. I'm always early. And I'm sure that's actually done well for you. Um, no, I don't feel like it served me at all or, or hurt or, or helped me. It's just the way it's always been. I don't. I heard Jimmy Walker was going to get the remote control gig, but you showed up before. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you showed up five minutes before. Yeah. Well, like you said, diligence, smart, intelligence, whatever. Well, yeah. So... Uh, when we were sitting around here before this got sorted out, because we were in another studio and we got moved studios here, um, which I guess is why the garage approach to podcasting works, because it's just your garage, you don't get moved around. But uh, I had said something about, uh, if you are, we were talking about a mutual friend of ours, Tom Kelly, who's a talented writer, and, and said uh, he's uh, smart, sane, and diligent, and that if you're those three things, you, you can go pretty far. Right. Yeah. And, and you said you were two of those three. I'm two of the three. I'm smart and I'm diligent. But sane, you know, I mean, I never thought of myself as insane. And I was glad you said it. You, you seem relatively sane, you said to me, which which I agree with. But I've had enough feedback. But then again, maybe the feedback I've been getting is from people that are insane. You know, insane people always think you're crazy. So maybe I am sane and I've just been listening to psychos since I've been doing a lot of... Well, because we're all like narcissistic and myopic, right? Humans. Yes. That we all think everybody is the way we are a lot of the time. Um, right. Right, like if I, that's why people can't understand, they, they get personally affronted, like if I say, uh, I loved True Detective, right. and you didn't like it. Right. I can't understand it. Right. Well, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that these, that I'm listening to psychopaths, yes. so I'm saying these psychos think I'm crazy, because they're crazy. Right, they think you're just like them. But Right, but it just shows that I'm so... That I that I actually should, really it all comes back to you like why am I why are these people giving me this kind of feedback why am I around these people why are you exactly that's the question I don't have an answer for you well you hang around with comedians your whole life yeah comedians can be pretty insane you know I always thought it was a cliche before I started comedy where he's like ah comedians they they you know they're nuts they're miserable whatever and I was always like ah that's not true but it, you know it's got a lot of truth to it I wouldn't say. I would even say comedians are crazier than actors in a certain way. Actors, successful, famous actors are the craziest of all because you're surrounded by all these people on the set all the time just catering to you. At least as a comedian, you get some some abuse because you have to deal with a live crowd. So it, it gives you a wake-up call. It gives you a little bit of humility because you're still dealing with the crowd and some people are not laughing. Well, you know, I, I bet you you comb through history and, uh, it, I mean, you know a lot about history. How many kings... Were sane, real kings. You know when right. kings had real when power. Kings, when kings were kings. Yeah, I mean even Uday. I mean when anytime there's a king, right. 
right? Kim Kim uh, Kim Jong Kim Jong Un. I mean, yeah. right? That kind of and movie well, stars. Well, those are the Uday and Kim Jong Un are the sons of. Those are like the sons of movies. They're the really crazy ones, right? Power. Let me tell you something. Anybody who's had any power or any success that said it didn't at least affect them for a time is lying, in my opinion. Nobody gets away scot-free. Nobody handles it completely gracefully. It's impossible. It's chemically impossible. Well, there's this leads into something I want to talk about, which is, um, I mean, you know, there's a saying that, that the first two years anybody becomes famous, they're useless. Hilarious. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's all coming at you in, oh, it, you know, when you're, you're suddenly validated, and most people who become famous, their, their insecurity was fighting with their ego the whole time, and then you get this valid. I mean, what you know, I was going to say to you, what when you when remote control happened for you, right? So for the the audience who who doesn't know or doesn't remember, and, and Colin, you know, the show is called The Moment, and what I, I focus on at the beginning usually is it's like a moment in somebody's life, an inflection point when everything changed. Right. When it could have gone one way or another. And I was thinking for you, you know, I guess the Broadway show in a way is that because like your life, you finally got this kind of, I think, a certain kind of um, response and val validation. But in a way, remote control was like that because everything shifted, didn't it? Well, I mean, remote control was, it was interesting because on the one hand, I was getting fame, which I wanted. That's why, you know what I mean? Like I wanted to be famous. And I wanted all the all the perks that come with that. And on the other hand, it was doing something I didn't even really care about, which was this crazy game show that was talking about like 80 sitcoms. And I was like, wait, but I'm a stand-up. I want people to know my stand-up. And I'd go do stand-up. People would go, what? You know what I mean? I, mean, I wasn't even that strong of a stand-up. And I was very uh, avant-garde-ish. So it was like a very strange... This was in the late 80s. Just yes. Then, and, and 88, 89. 88, 89. And the, MTV at that time was the center of pop culture. Yes. In, yes. in a way, I don't even know what's like what the equivalent is now because it was, it was like um, the way people were crazed about True Detective, where they get crazed about an HBO. Right. It, what was happening at MTV at that time? It, it was like cable was just in everybody's home, right? And MTV was the coolest thing on cable, right? And there was this game show called Remote Control, and this comedian who passed away named Ken Ober was the host, and Colin was the sidekick, and there was this gorgeous, crazy woman named Carrie Wurr who was the, uh, what was she like, the, what did she do on the she show? She was like the, yeah, I mean, she was, she was actually underrated when I think about her. Not only did she look gorgeous, and I mean, she was just, and I saw her at Kenny's uh, wake, and she still looked amazing, but she was funny, like, she had the right attitude where she was like, hey, I don't care. She was crazy, like you say, she was like, I don't care. Like, she was very irreverent in that she didn't care. And she wasn't out there trying to be like, I'm adorable. She was like, we all know I'm adorable. That's a given. But, you know, I'm I'm going to bust. But, you know, like she was a troublemaker in a funny way. Well, the show was so important to all of us. And I, I was yeah. a contestant on the show. <laughs> you? Yeah. <laughs> I was. It's uh, great. Yeah. I was a contestant. The one game show. This so, is great. Yeah. Our senior year of college, they went around to What's all cool? the colleges. Tufts. I was at Tufts. Tufts. And Tufts. And they went around and like 300 wow. of us auditioned and they picked two of us. And me and my, me and this guy I've been friends with since I was in sixth grade named Peter Zizzo. Seventh. The two of us uh, did, I did a Gilbert Gottfried impression. And that's what got me on the wow. show. <laughs> in front of like the whole room of 300 people. So I get on the show. And and there's a my wife recently found uh, a so there was a gag on on the show where you tried to if if um the contestant hit a button 
one of the gags was if you cannot laugh, if Colin tries to make you laugh and you don't right, laugh, right. you got points. Right. So you tried, you whispered in my ear for, right. for like a minute and I held off. What I, the hell did I whisper? I can't remember. I have, but so my wife found that uh, someone sent her, I have it. And I, I kiss you at the end of it. Because <laughs> that's yeah, great. Hilarious. It's great. Um, so, but I that, probably whispered something really dirty. I used to try to whisper dirty things to make people laugh. Right, especially like some 21-year-old college right. kid. Um, but it was a seminal, it was incredible for me because that so, show, these guys were like the monkeys or something. It was so popular. Yeah, it was really a crazy show. What was that like for you? That well, first speaking because, of, I'll tell you the moment, which I've said before, some, I, I, I forget. But what, um, You wrote about it or did it? In a, I did it in some interview once. But I was saying the moment that it changed, oh, it was some MTV thing they were doing some MTV, was we were in Florida, we'd done the first season, Kenny's like, our show is big, you don't understand. And then we went to a strip club, which right. in those days there weren't that many strip clubs around. It was like 1989. But in Florida, there was a lot of strip clubs, you know. And all the strippers were talking to these guys, you know, talking to some guys, giving them money. We didn't have any money basically on us. We weren't, MTV paid nothing. We're just sitting there in the strip club looking at these strippers across the room. In about five minutes, six of them were hanging out with us, ignoring the customers, waving money. Right. And we weren't we're giving any money. And I was like, oh, this is bad. This you is bad. You could tell. Yeah. And now I know we, we don't have to, I know you're publicly sober, but don't talk about it. But the, what I'm interested in is, I know the stories about Ken. I was around it a little bit after right. I had a lot of comedian friends, right? And I know that um, at that time, the audience was these 18-year-old girls. Right. How did, what did that feel like to you? Like, how did you manage it knowing, okay, this triggers a whole bunch of, like, how did you manage well, it? Well, I mean, I didn't think of it as triggering anything. I mean, it's good. Just that fun. Sex was sex. But I mean, I definitely had nights, like, there were nights, one night in particular, I remember, which is Sam Kennison, Kenny, all these strippers, like 15 girls from, and Motley Crue, and they're all getting in the elevator in Florida. We're doing some spring break right. thing. And they all get in the elevator. I'm in the elevator, too. I knew Sam Kennison a little bit, you know. And he's, they're going up, they have this big thing of coke, like this giant bag of coke, all these girls, everyone's getting ready for like this wild sexual time. And then the elevator hits 12, which is my floor, and I just get off and go to my room. Right. And it killed me to do it because I was like, and, and the door shut and they were all looking at me like, you're, you're leaving? You're leaving? Like, good night. And I was like, good night. And I just went. And everyone's like, what? And the girls are looking at me like, what is it? What is it? You know, what's going on? This guy, what's he doing? Like, it was the perfect time. And, and it was what just, was going through your head? I mean, I was feeling horrible, but I knew, I said, if if, if I go up there, it's not going to be, uh, those girls are going to be a distant memory in my head, because I'll be right at that, co I'll be at that coke and whatever else I got here. And I just knew, I knew I was going to get, I just had to hide in my room and hug the covers that night, because it was just too, it was the perfect night for all that stuff. And there was no way I was going to go up there without getting high and drinking and just being, you know. I mean, the sex was the least of it to me at that point. I was just, I had to get away. I had to get out of there. And it's a good thing I did. I, I know it saved my life. I mean, if I had gone up that night, everybody else would have been the next day. I would have been in Florida jail for life or whatever. You would have been on the crazy train. Something would have happened, but I know I wouldn't have. I knew I had to run out there. Even though I felt horrible leaving, I was like, I can't believe I'm leaving this orgy of like... And the crew, Motley Crew guys were in the elevator Motley, A couple of Motley Crew guys, a couple of everybody. So, all right, I never have told this I story before, Crew, yeah. and, and this podcast is about you, but I have to tell it. I'll do it quickly. Um, but I have the same Motley Crew. I have a Motley Crew story. It's almost identical. Hilarious. Uh, I was in, in the music business before. Uh, I was 30 when Dave and I sold our first script. And before that, I was in the music business. I was an A&R guy. So I would find bands and work with them. And the guy who'd signed Motley Crew left the record company. And I was assigned right. to take care of Motley Crew. They were recording in Vancouver. 
And I had spent a crazy week in L.A. I was 22 years old, a crazy week in L.A., at the end of which I get the call, they're ready for you to go to Vancouver. I had been up for like three days, uh, drinking a lot of Jägermeister and hanging oh. out with a, a, a girl. But I go, all right, I got to go. I'm wearing, like, I, I just went, back then, you know, you could go right to the airport, remember. Uh, so I go to the airport, uh, wearing this, just these clothes, no luggage. Right. I get to the studio, they're recording... Um, uh, don't go away mad, just go away. Mick Mars is playing. I see right. the whole band, Bob Rock. There's Nikki, Tommy. They take me. We leave. They go. They were going through their sober period. They say, let's go to a strip club. We go to the strip club. They each drive a Ferrari. <laughs> each guy goes two blocks. So Tommy, Nikki, Vince. Right. I go with Nikki. We go to the strip bar, hang out. They're drinking mousy fake beer. Go back to the studio, and they say to me, we're having a party tonight. It's just us and our manager. It's our manager's birthday. There will be no guys here. The four of us, our manager, our producer, and we're inviting you because you seem all right. You know, I was thinking, they wanted whatever. Uh, they go, we're right, inviting right. you. And every single stripper that you just met at that club, plus the strippers at every other club in Vancouver, are all going to be at the studio tonight. Oh, and hilarious. I'm 22 year old single guy. Yes, this is everything you go into the music business, of course, praying and hoping for. And uh, I say you know what but I look and I'm wearing this ratty shirt I've been wearing for three days and the same jeans and I'm smelly and disgusting and I go this is awesome guys I'm gonna go back to my hotel I'm gonna shower get some new right. clothes right. and I go back to the thing I get the clothes I go to the hotel I shower and I just say I'm gonna lie down for five minutes and I wake up it's six the next morning oh my god yeah the great regret of my life that's a great regret but um but, my, but you maybe know, I would have maybe you know what would have happened if I really did that but exactly you might have just been forever. Or I'd be smiling to this day. You could be. The other choice but, is the smile. But also, in my elevator, it might have been, I'm pretty sure it was Motley Crue, but it also could have been like Cinderella, Faster Pussycat. Oh, sure. There were a lot of bands that reminded me of Motley Crue at that time. Tame Me Down. But that in your case. In Faster Pussycat. That was <laughs> yeah. his name, Tame Me Down. <laughs> but in your case, it's, uh, it's in some ways, it's worse because really, but why were you so tired? You hadn't slept. I hadn't slept in like three days. Oh, Maybe four. Because I, I had this. And you woke up at 6 a.m. Yeah, I woke up the next morning. And I remember like my but at eyes least you opened. weren't at least you weren't the guy that then tried to get over there at 7 o'clock. No, no. I accepted my failure. A lot of guys would have been knocking on that door at 7 a.m. Hey, man, is the party on? But I, but I will say that when I did show up at the studio at 11 or 12, Tommy just looked up and he goes, man, you really f***. <laughs> he really did. He was like, he was a body, you know, he was a body you know, animal, dude. He's like, dude. He's like, how the, you know, how did you? And I just went, and he had that personality. Tommy yes. Lee had that perfect, that kind of guy. Not even just a rock star. Just there's always one guy that's just like laconic, and like still like the master, like with all the girls. And that was Tommy Lee. He has that personality, like, dude. You know, like never really raises his voice. And he's like, dude, you and you're like, you damn it. You just, and you know, I knew, <laughs> and, so and I knew right then too, it was like one of those things. I mean, you obviously had the new, because you, it was a self-preservation, but obviously some part of me, right. what you really think about now as an adult, I mean, some part of me but, didn't want to do that, right? Some part of me knew. But also, let me tell you something else about that. You, what I always do to reassure myself, like for all the regret type situations like that in life, I'm like, what if I had decided to do that? And then I got run over by a car on the way over there. I always look at this situation like, well, I was, I'm alive because what could have happened was this if I had done that, 
Some oh. arbitrary thing could have fell off a roof and hit you in the head. Oh, you never know. I mean, if you, it's that, the only way to no, it's the only way to those. make it. Look, I, yes, I, I like the life that I have. I love it. I have these kids. Right? I know. If I did that, who knows the direction? What I meant? That's I, right. What I, of course. That said, if I really One do bit. allow myself to picture what that night. Yes. Could have been like. You know, you read their book. Oh, it's the greatest night ever. But you never know. You get one line of coke, hits your brain the wrong way, and next thing you know, you're paralyzed. It no, does happen 100%. all the time. And I, no, so I can just, I mean, like I say, never, you know, it's not a story I really tell about myself very often. Just, you know, <laughs> it's a great it's story. It's a great story of all but time. It's, but it's a great story. <laughs> you know, but I, yes, I, we lived a similar moment, That's probably hilarious. a few right. years apart. But so, right now, to this day, even though they're all sober now, whatever, you know, they're all older men, they probably look at each other. Hey, remember those two assholes that walked away from the best orgies of our life? Yeah. They're like, remember those greatest nights of those are probably the greatest nights of their lives too. Yeah, and we just and we walked away. We were just passing on it, just passing. <laughs> but so you idiots. disciplined yourself. I mean, you did it on purpose. I did it. I, now, did, I had to do now, it. Now I knew but, I was going to do it. But did you not take advantage of the party at that time in general? Yeah, I mean, of course, I went out with. I mean, I had girls. You know, I mean, I went out with different girls and stuff. But I was never quite. You know, it was the late eighties, so it wasn't like it. It was just. Uh, it was like a wild time, but I definitely, no, I definitely was, uh, you know, if there was any indulgence I had, it was cigarettes, which I smoked right. 11 packs a day, and having sex, yeah. Right. And so you just said, I'm going to take advantage of that in that I way. I'm going to enjoy that. But I never really went full out because I wasn't drinking and doing drugs, and that's where that scene would go on. So I more had girlfriends, but you know what I mean? But So I wasn't really just out there every night, but... And it seems like that, that the the dichotomy or the, the juxtaposition between like you getting this fame, but you feeling like you're not getting it for doing what you yeah, want. Yeah, no, that was torturing me the whole time. That started me writing. To this day, I write like compulsively, and that's what started me writing compulsively. I would stay in my house. In fact, another funny story, my friend once brought this girl, he met another stripper from a strip club over to my apartment in New York a few in the early 90s, and I was writing. I was in this phase, I got to write. I'm not saying what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not living up to my potential as a, uh, what am I doing? This is a joke. You know, I'm just this person that's known from MTV. Whatever. Right. So I'm writing compulsively, you know. And then the, he brings a girl over, and she's drunk. She's like, yeah, like hitting around to do a three-way with us. And then I go, uh, guys, I'd love to, but I have to, I have to write, you know. Now, most girls would be offended by that. You know what I mean? She, she looks at me. She just goes, I'll give you something to write about. Wow. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. She looked at pen me like, goes down? You put no, the pen down? No. Really? No. Wow. You're like Hemingway. I walked away. You're like a modern I Hemingway. I walked away. But I just love the I love the spirit of her to go, I'll give you something to write a about. Great line. <laughs> Have you put it in anything? No. I mean, that's, you got to put that in something. But I just love that. Her attitude was just like, yeah, please, give me a break. But it seems to me like, and you talk about this a lot on stage. It seems like um, you've almost never gotten over this idea that uh, that that there's some kind of split between like what you really are or could be and what you do. Like I'm mean, even the show. This is what I was like. You know, you made this show called uh, Co uh, Cop Show. I'm so happy we're talking about Cop Show like it's an actual show right now. It's great. Eventually, like, will you put it up so people can see it? Yeah, sure. But so go it's ahead. this 12 and a half minute, really hilarious show where Colin is playing a version of Colin Quinn, but he's the show is about a Colin Quinn starring on a cop show. Right. And then when Colin plays the, the cop in the show... He's incredibly stiff and pompous <laughs> um, and uh, a total liar and a real phony. Um, and, you know, I watched the other night and you've done the Law and Order bit on, on television. Right. But I watched the Law and Order bit the other night. Um, oh, you do it in the cop show. You mention it. But I saw you do right. the shtick uh, on, on the stage. Yeah. 
And this bit Colin does is about how he's just famous enough that he should have been on Law and Order. Right. But he's not. Right? I mean, what yeah. do you say? You I've say, never been on Law That's an inspired cop show that I've never been on Law and Order. Because you feel, how could you not have been on, uh, on the show? Having it's the status, insane. the kind of, what kind of fame does, do you say you have? Like, yeah. The, the, yeah, just. You said you're famous enough. I'm famous, I'm famous, but I'm not, I mean, I'm famous, but I'm not a celebrity. Like, nobody cares. I'm famous, but nobody gives a shit basically what I always say. Right. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. Well, I'm just saying when I walk down the street, people expect to see me. Like, they're like, hey, and they start talking to me like they know me. Like, they don't talk like, oh my God, Colin Quinn. They're like, hey, and they just continue a conversation that we never had before. And do you feel in general that you've been, like, um, rewarded, commensurate with what you've done? Or do you not? Do you... It's not a question of reward or commensurate with what I've done. I don't feel like I've done that much. I feel like what I have backed up material wise and show wise and all that i'm sure you've heard me ramble on stage about that i talk about it constantly that's what i feel like never gets made and i'm sure you you know the the last person i deserve sympathy from is a screenwriter and director because you guys are the ones that understand what i'm talking about because about 15 years ago i made a conscious effort to become a screenwriter right and a, a showrunner a screenwriter director that was my move None of it materialized. I've written shows. I've written movies. I've done the research. I've read, done eight rewrites on everything, you know, just all that stuff, development deals, and none of it is has uh, materialized. So I'm very, uh, I'm very, uh, you know, beyond. It's not even frustration. I mean, I guess this is just the normal lot in life that you guys have to deal with. Well, I, it infuriates me at a level I can't even begin. What infuriates you about it? The fact that I feel like, it's the same old cliche that you work on things that are original, that you work on things that people are like, oh my God, it's so hilarious. It's so deep. It's, a, it's exactly time. It's the time for this. And then they find reasons. They find things that are not similar at all. They go, well, we're already doing a show now with, you know, people. We're already doing a New York. <laughs> with people. A, yeah. We're already doing like a New York area show. And it's like, well, they just did that. And it's like when they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. And there's nothing you can do about that. But it's just, you know, you, I, it just you, makes me sick. Do you usually do it on spec? I do it totally, not even on spec. I just do it on my own. That's what I'm saying. You do it on yeah, your own. Yeah, but I get development deals, and then people like give me all this feedback, and then they But just... you'll do it, wait, with a development deal first, or do you write no, it on no, spec I write and it then first. go try to write get the deal? Write it on first, yeah. I, don't, you, I usually don't take development deals because I'm like, I don't want to lock it into one place. No, I think that's better to do, not get the development deal. Right, I right. agree with you. Yeah. And so you write these things and it feels f frustrating for you because you think you've yeah. delivered and then... And I feel like, I feel like, you know, yeah, I feel like um, it's very, it's very, I mean, I have all these projects backed up in my house and it's like, it, it, it just makes me mad, you know. But I mean, like I said, welcome to the business. Everybody understands you, like you said, episodes and that kind of stuff. Like, even when you get it made, they like to tamper with it and ruin it just because that's the nature of the of the beast, I guess, you know? Well, because of the, the collaborative nature of it, you're you're so at the... You're, there are times when the, the nature of the collaboration really elevates everything, and then there are times that just the nature of the collaboration um, just ruins it. But there's no way it can elevate it unless you've been a screenwriter. Now, what you just said before, you said about doing stand-up. Like, then... You can tell me about stand-up, and I'm, like, twice as interested because I'm, like, here's somebody who bothered to do it. So if you're an executive that wrote a couple of screenplays, sure. I don't care if they failed. You understand the process. Oh, That's no, great. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, when I did, so, yeah, I did stand-up for a year and a half, and I did it, like, open mic. I didn't um, 
have anyone who re- like I didn't do it in any. Right. Didn't I didn't any jump over anything. Right. Like right. I didn't go to the set. Like I've for, known SD for. I never once even walked on that stage. Right. I, I can't walk on that stage. Right, right. I slowly went to Boston Comedy Village, right. stand up New York Monday nights. Then you know I never would do a bringer show because I was just like right. I was able to guest on them. But yeah, I did a year and a half and like got to the point where I passed at two places and I was getting up. And then it actually helped me. I was creatively blocked writing a script. That's great. And by doing it for a year and a half, something broke. You know, and you know I broke else? through because the great. failure of bombing on stage right. almost cures you of the fear of any other failure. Yes, yes. And it's a great, like I said, even today, it's a great humiliating, I mean, humility lesson for, that every comedian needs. No matter how big you are, when you get up there and people looking at you like, hey, I'm not laughing right now, so you better get it together. And you have to start going, oh, shoot, I better get it together right now. And it it brings people to a good level. But when you, but when, just I, so I want to ask about that because I, I was at a show you did. I've seen you perform many times because you know we have mutual friends that I sure. go to the thing with, right? Probably seen you on stage a hundred times. But I went to a show, uh, I guess six months ago, where you and your friend Jerry Seinfeld were performing for some charity at the theater at Madison Square Garden. Right. Do you remember that night? It was. Uh, it was I, six months ago. What was it eight months ago? It was within okay. the last. Yeah, within a year for okay. sure. It was a big charity um, event for like some medical charity. Okay. And you opened for Jerry, and Jerry came out and did like forty-five minutes for right. a bunch of people who'd driven in from Long Island and Connecticut right. at the theater at Madison Square Garden. Okay. But you walked on stage, and I felt like you almost—you didn't bomb. You never bomb. But uh, it seems to me like you were doing something other than just trying to entertain the people, like almost like a Miles Davis thing. Like, you were just trying to amuse yourself, or Jerry. Like, what goes on when you do a show like that? Because I've seen you destroy... You can destroy anytime you want. I... And, but you didn't go... You were doing new stuff. stuff. Right. I and there were 2,000 people, stuff. and yeah. you were doing new stuff. Well, you know what it is? I've always felt like this dog whistle. Like, the comedians always love me, because what you said, I'm always, like, trying to amuse myself. But I'm not. I'm actually trying to make the crowd laugh, but I'm actually... I'm just a great uh, mis- misjudger of... <laughs> What's it's funny? It's an accident. It's yes. just an accident. People are like, oh my God, you really don't give a shit. I'm like, no, I do give a shit, but I just, <laughs> I just assume if I think it's funny, the crowd's gonna think it's funny. Right. Well, that's which has served you well most of your, well, most of your life. I bombed. I would say since you've seen me hundreds of times, you'll know better than anybody. I, out of everybody who's well known, like I am. I probably have the high percentage of bombing of anybody. But you're the only one I've ever seen who seems to have a better and better time the worse you're doing. <laughs> yeah. What's that about, man? Because it's like moments. Like, you do, this show's called Moments. Look. You know what I mean? Yes. Moments. And if you'll notice, I've even actually, uh, in Amish you, I'll actually do my 15-minute uh, less. I'll do my 15-second uh, lessons with stand-up in the middle of a bit, I'll comment, like, here's why that didn't work, like you do with screenplay. Yes. I'll actually say, here's why that bomb bombed. I thought this would happen, and you were here, so I'll actually explain what <laughs> right. happened, but you, just what you do. But you've been doing that. I watched last night, I watched your first uh, your first one-night stand. Right. Which you killed on the one-night stand. You did really <sighs> well, right? But I even saw then, you did the thing where you sat down, and got, it is on, on YouTube, and it's worth getting, because... Colin was a kid, right? I'm 92. How old? Yeah, were you? 30 I was, years? yeah. I wasn't that young, but I was—I looked I, young. You were—you you had were a mullet. A, you did. You had a mullet. Well, I did too then, so I can. Yeah, relate, we exactly. The People we all had, mullets. had the mullets then. Bono um, had a mullet. 
you know, well, what is it? Uh, business in front, party in the, party in the rear. <laughs> like the El Camino. That's correct. It's the El Camino. Yep. But, the Kentucky uh, Waterfall. It is the Kentucky it. Waterfall, the El Camino. So we had, yes, you had the mullet, but there's this great moment in it, and it presages like your whole shtick, because most people, when they do those specials, yes. I mean, every second of it is calculated. Right. Planned out. Right. And you do this thing where you sat down on the stage. Yeah. And then you were like, I feel, you could just tell, you were like, what am I doing? Right. And you stood up. Right. And most guys would have played right through it. But you remember what you did? No. You go, you see that guy's that stagecraft. I, and you did the whole thing. And I sat and now I stood myself up. And like, you broke the whole thing. I know. Well, it didn't serve me well over the years, but it's definitely something I believe in. Which is, uh, sometimes you have to, you have to, like you said, when you were doing stand-up, it broke you through. Like, for me, I have to, I have to comment, I have to break the, uh, the thing, because the whole point of stand-up to me is that, wow, you're actually watching a live thing right now. So let's not pretend I'm going to laugh in the same... I'm going to spontaneously fake laugh in the same spot every night. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to do that. So it's like, I'm not going to go out... I can't just... I can. You can manufacture an act where you go out and go, hey, guys, this is how it goes every night, and I act like it's a spontaneous moment, but I've done it a thousand times that way. Like, I like to mix it up and just say, okay, let's see what happens. Let's get to the to the raw part of this other thing, you know? But because but, you're an artist. Because uh, you're an artist. Because I want to be an artist. No, yeah, but you are an artist, right? And I knew you would not be comfortable with just saying that you're an artist. <laughs> because, right? I set that up. No, I, I prefer being a wannabe. Right. That's great at 50. I mean, <laughs> right? No, it'll have Picasso was how old? Yeah. Well, I read this Picasso quote the other day. What did he say? He, he wanted to uh, be rich enough to live like a poor man or something. <laughs> he wanted to live uh, like a very rich, poor person or something like that life. But he was, you know, so... That sounds... Uh, scandalously close to another expression for rich living like a poor rich person. <laughs> like what? Oh, Wait, I'll leave what it is out. It's a famous old expression. What? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe leave it on the side. <laughs> but, but, uh, but don't you think your approach to it? Because, like, okay, then Jerry comes out, and he's right. a close friend, and he's incredible, one of the best sure. who ever lived. But he comes out and he puts on a show, right? <laughs> And like the 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 difference in that, I was sitting in the audience. Now I think Jerry's a master. Yeah. But uh, like I left halfway through his set because, and I thought he was he's a master. I think he's a genius. Definitely. You know, one of the very best to ever oh, live. Yes. The guy's given me a tremendous amount of joy. Yes. But I was sitting at the front of my chair watching you at the garden because I was like, what the f is he doing? <laughs> but like, you've seen me do it at the cellar. Yeah, but okay. But at the cellar at two thirty. Right. With 25 people like, who are comedy freaks yeah. who want to see that. Right. Versus some guy, because Jerry yeah. Jerry opens that show talking about what these people did to get there. Right. You know that, what Great does he say? Like, I, I, you don't want to come, you had to come, you bought the tickets, and now you're like, how do we get there? We get, right, right, right. He does a whole thing basically saying, I understand what you guys went through. Right. I am going to put on a show for you. Right. Um. Which I thought was like, uh, it taught me, actually, it was a fascinating thing about kind of like the obligation of the performer, the headliner. That's right. That's right. Uh, but your thing, it seemed to me that night, and, and I really, like it, it was, uh, yeah, you're here, but what you're going to see is my, explore. you're still exploring, it seems like. Yes, I am. I am. You're right. I'm not, I'm definitely not even, I feel like, you know, it's funny you're bringing all this up because I'm actually been writing this other stuff because, you know, I've been doing the what? Constitution show, so... But what I've been doing is writing these other shows, and this summer, 
if nothing happens to the cop show, I'm planning to film all my, as much of my material as I can remember over the year. Like I have it all written in various forms and just film it all because I'm, it's bugging that me that it's not out there. And it's so much stuff. So many different shows I've done just for like two weeks and stuff where I did a little play, you know. So I just wait. What do you say it again? So you're gonna film like all your all your bits? My plan is to film is to find a place and just film all summer. Like just film cheaply, but do it all and just shoot it all. You you mean all of the material? All of my material over the years, yeah, that I haven't filmed, that I haven't really done, you know. That's a great idea. I love to just get it out of the way. You don't have it. How many specials did you do? Just, I mean, that half hour and then unconstitutional. And that's it. That's it. And then, well, then you had outlets, Tough Crowd and the Colin Tough Quinn Crowd show. and all that stuff, but I mean, yeah, but no, nothing where I was filming, where I was doing stuff. Because other comics look at you, you know, I've had, I've talked about this with a lot of comedians, you know, I, I'm sure you know that, I mean, the comedians all look at you like Yoda. Comedians have always been, my, comedians are the only reason I stayed in the f***ing comedy business. What do you mean? I mean, if it wasn't for comedians in my early years at the cellar, I always tell this other story about William Cornell. Oh, I remember him well. William Cornell. His and one wife, night, uh, who's an agent at uh, WME. Oh, she is? Yeah. And um, one night I go on, and I was at the pass at the cellar. Which, when you were, it's funny when you talked about, I passed at two clubs. Like, people not in comedy don't understand. That's a big deal. To pass anywhere is so hard in New York, and harder when you were doing it than when I was doing it. It was hard well, I was going to talk to you about the cellar, what it meant to pass at the cellar. Pass, so passing at the cellar was a big thing, but at that time it wasn't... What does it mean? Describe, yeah, tell everyone what it means. Well, I mean, it doesn't mean anything ultimately because you pass at catch. At the, in those days, passing at catch was the big thing. But even then, passing and getting on are two different things. So sure. passing at these clubs seems like a big deal when it happens, and you, you have prestige among your little open mic buddies, but... You're not getting on. It doesn't matter, you know. And um, did you start getting on right away? No. What happened was I was not getting on. So I was doing late night. But like I said, all the comedians were always big fans. Every comedian was always nice to me. You know what I mean? And um, and uh, but one night I go on at the cellar. I finally had a good spot. I had a couple of good spots. And I got on like a perfect time, perfect crowd. Everything's perfect. Like Wednesday night crowded. Nothing was wrong. Crowd wasn't right. I went on. The first two guys did great. I'm on. I'm feeling good. Got my material. Went on and silence for like the entire 20. I need to leave you on for 20 in those days. 20 minutes of silence. Billiams EMC. And I'm just, you know, halfway through, of course, I'm riffing, you know, commenting on how it's not going how it's well. Going poorly. Yeah. How this crowd, you know, things should be perfect and whatever. I do like the whole set. And I just, as I'm leaving, I had no one to blame but myself. And I go, I'm leaving the business. I go, whatever I'm meant to do, I'm not meant to do stand-up comedy, obviously. Whatever else I'm meant to do, stand-up is not for me. I had a perfect crowd. There's no and way you couldn't this... make it happen. And I couldn't make it happen. And Billiam Cornell goes on. He goes, here's the MC, And he goes, folks, that was the funniest stand-up comedy set you'll ever see in your life. And you'll, and you'll never even realize it. <laughs> really? Yes. And you heard it, and it changed I heard it. Head. And I thought he was being sarcastic. But then he came off. He goes, that was so funny. He goes, you are so funny. So it was like, that was the kind of... That really kept me well, going. that's what I was going to ask you, which is who you're talking to, which is the comics, right? Ultimately, right, right. I mean, is that? <laughs> but I'm not trying to talk to them. I'm trying to talk to the audience. But for are some you reason, really? I, are you really though? Yes, I swear to God, every set I've ever gone on stage has been with the intent of making that audience laugh, every time. But for whatever reason, I play to the band somewhere on my in my system. I must be playing to the band because that's. That's who always hears me. 
Never the they always hear, but the band does. The all band the, always I mean, hears me. The you're comedians. one of these people. Comedians always come to watch, right? And right? I, and I play to the band, but I never. I remember a catch. Even my other friends were like, "How the f are you getting all these?" When I started, and I was I was bombing all the time. How is it? And all the comedians would come in. These guys were big famous men, comedians. Ronnie yeah. Shakes. I mean, these guys are like '80s like legends. Right. They always come and watch me. And, I, and my friends like, "How the f are they coming to watch you?" You. I go. I don't know. I didn't know, but I was trying to play to the crowd. I was trying to kill every set I've ever had. I've tried to kill. Right. You're like a, a, the musician who doesn't understand why the critics love him <laughs> and the thing. Right. And it's like, I'm trying to be Neil Diamond. <laughs> right. And So you're trying to be Carrot Top. So what I'm saying... What comes out, <laughs> what comes out no. instead... No, no. I mean, I'm doing it on my terms. Of course, I would never try to do a joke just for the crowd, obviously. I'm not doing it to pander to... I mean, I would never write a joke and go, oh, I hope the crowd likes it. It's like, F you. I write what I think is funny... And if people don't like it, right? Too but, bad. There's a, but there's a generation of comedians, even like even today's comedians, who would say the crowd is what determines. Well, they all what determines, but you don't play to them. You know what I mean? Like just because they're they're as involved in this as we are. It's the weirdest art form in the sense that really we need them 100. percent But I don't need them on their lowest common denominator terms. I need them to be on my terms, or I'd rather do something else for a living. You know what I mean? Like, I need the crowd. I don't deny that I need them. But if they want to just only laugh at dick jokes, then I'll f leave the business. But what's so... Yeah, but the thing is, you've become incredible. I mean, you've become, for a comedian, I mean, you've become incredibly famous and successful doing this. You you have the ability to make them laugh whenever you want to. I if mean, you wanted to, if I told you, you know, your loved ones were at stake, you have to go up tonight right. and do a half hour that destroys, you know you could go do that. I could do 25, and then I'd go, oh, you people have my family hostage. <laughs> right. But you could do it. It's you somehow not it, yeah. that important to you. Well, not as important as doing what you think is. I mean, look, if we're not, if you know as well as I do from being, trying to be, if we're not trying to push our limits of what we're doing, then we're just trying to make money and just be successful in the eyes of the f***ing bank, you know what I mean? So you're saying, hey, that guy has more money in the bank than you. No, I know it's true, and I know you can only do your best work. I mean, I know with dead certainty that the best movies I made are Rounders and Solitary Man, and um, those two movies were very personal. They were stories that were like, had to be taught, you know, yeah. I had to tell them. Yeah. I love I love the movies I got to make with Soderbergh, like Ocean's 13 and, and uh, The Girlfriend Experience, too, but yeah. in Ocean's 13, because I was writing for these incredible actors, was in it? Dave and I were with incredible right. experience. But if I really, like, if I really drill down, I know I made the thing when I was blocked that I was trying to write was this movie Solitary Man, this little Michael Douglas movie, right. and you know that ended up being the most critically of anything that we've done. You know, got on all these top ten lists, and uh, people really responded to it. And I'm telling you, it was the least commercial. It did the work. You know, buy, made its money back, but right. it didn't wasn't a hit movie. Right. But it meant everything in the world to me to tell the story. That's great. But it's so clarifying because then you go and you do what I do. And and the business this is what's weird and it's weird for you too. The business will reward you a lot for what you for what's not the thing you actually are the best at. But let me say one more thing. I still feel that I feel and maybe I'm just being naive. Maybe I don't understand the business well. I feel like if the industry, whoever's in charge of a movie like Solitary Man, watches it and goes, you know what, we're going to promote this the way we would promote Ocean's Thirteen because this movie people will like it. I actually believe. I actually have total respect for the audience. I want to go, look, I'm giving you guys f***ing respect. Right. I'm telling you, you're on my level of f***ing humor. I'm not telling you, you don't Once want Once in a while, you get one. But I saw this one. There's a movie that we produced, Dave and I, called um, The Illusionist. 
And I will tell you, it was the most depressing thing working on that movie, seeing the business. Because when you write it yourself, as you know, when you write your own thing, you can think it's good, you can know, but you can never really have enough objective separation to truly course, judge, right? Course. So the rejections, you train yourself not to let the rejections penetrate, but they penetrate a little, right? Of course. But The Illusionist, I didn't write it. We found a, a writer. He wrote this, adapted this short story, and made this. You know, wrote this script. We worked with him on the script. And I knew it was great. And it got rejected for two and a half years, over and over again. And then took it to... Uh, we got Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti to be in it and then couldn't get the money and then finally got the money to make the movie and made it and had a finished movie that tested a 95. No movies test a 95. Right. And every studio passed on it. Finally, we got some guy who put up the money to put it in a couple of theaters. The movie did $100 million worldwide. And then the guy stole all the money and went bankrupt. I never got a dollar out of it. But oh. that's not the... That doesn't matter. <laughs> who cares about the... But who see, does this for the money? But exactly. Even though you're joking, you're serious that it doesn't matter as much to you as... It doesn't. But that's an artist. Well, uh, half the people but, in the business would be like, eh, the money, that's, that would be the whole story. Right. They wouldn't no. give a about the I, other The part. truth is, it's that's annoying, I mean. but that's it. Right. But the point is, for, I watched... For, and that's why when I say in those videos to people about rejection, I watched everybody be wrong. Yeah. And they were certain they were right. But I knew objectively this thing is, and this is really good. Right, like right. I gotta figure out how to. Dave and I were like, we gotta figure out how to get this made. It's yeah. we can't get this made. What are we doing? Yeah. So I can understand why you say you have to. Um, uh, but there's, I, I just think that your thing is, t and I wonder about it when you say, you know, uh, you're you're diligent and you're smart, but you're not sane. I wonder what the what the self destructive piece of it is. Well, I don't know because I mean. Like you say, I've been, it's not like I'm a drug addict. It's not like I do all this other stuff. I don't, you know what I mean? Um, it, this, I feel like this. I feel like it's not a self-destructive thing. I feel like there's an energy and this is all just, you know, self-serving, of course. There's an energy I put out to people that have the power to make these decisions that they don't like. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is. But it's like, whatever I'm putting out, they don't like. Do you write yourself in as the lead in all these shows? No. Half of them I'm, in, half of them I, I'm not even involved in. Right. So and, it's not And that. still, you're, you get a little traction, but you're not able to get it the whole way. And why does it matter to you? It's, why is, wh what's your desire to do this? Where does it come from? Um, I don't know. You know, I'll do, well, do, it started, because I remember years ago, I was like, I know all these funny comedians. I know all, it's the same thing as Tough Guy, but I know all these funny comedians. But I watch these comedies, they're not that funny. We should all be writing comedies. And I go, well, the problem is we don't know how to write screenplays. So it's a different right. discipline. So I taught myself how to write screenplays. You know, I went to Robert McKee first. That was 22 years ago. And I started writing and failing and writing horrible. I look at him now, I'm like, oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. It's ugly. It's terrible. And I started getting better. Still bad, but better. And, you know, and then I started getting interested in different subjects and started writing about them all the time, and then and then I was like, oh, this is this is this is good. You know, this is what's meant to be for me to write these kinds of things. And I said, I want to be a showrunner. I want to be like one of these showrunner guys, you know. And I started writing these things and and uh, researching all the time. You know, spending all my free time researching and just I don't know what my you get just, off on it. You get off on it as much as you do performing. No, performing is the lucky. I've never realized how lucky I am to be a performer. Then then when I started writing screenplays and, and shows that you're not performing because with performing you get to actually test it you get to get that little high of performing R writing the other way is a tougher discipline because you can't you know i mean you know better than anybody i mean this is what well, you guys that's 
that's the muscles. That's that's like that deep, what they call core, like Tai Chi type shit. That's like right. the deep muscle. Right. That's a deep it's just muscle. The, well, the reward, the, the, now I'm not talking about the external rewards. The internal rewards come, they're harder to come by. Like, you they're have days. Impossible to come I mean, by. You have days when it's. When you can do it long enough, you can sense it. But what you said, when it works, it, when it's you got to have... come from you, the reward. Yes, only, people... only in all because, this stuff. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, what I realized doing stand-up ultimately was, uh, uh, and that's why I see for me, I have such an incredible regard for great stand-ups, for what you do. Because I saw a year and a half in, I realized that to get great at that requires every single thing that you have. Yeah. Well, well, to do full immersion. I feel like to, everything you do, er, anything you do takes everything you got. You know what I mean? Like so, to be a great to be great at anything, yes. it takes everything you got. Yes, because I saw I would have ten. I had like seven and a half real minutes. You know that right. famous story? Guy comes up stage and says to Lewis Black, he goes, "How much? What do you have?" And the guy goes, "I have fifty minutes." And Lewis goes, "You got three minutes." Like he knew. But <laughs> <laughs> forget who it is. It's like. But I had like seven and a half minutes, but I would see like on a Tuesday, the seven and a half minutes would work, and on a Wednesday, they wouldn't work. Right. And I couldn't figure it yes. out. Yes. It's maddening. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's, it's you in the sense that you're like, well, wait a minute. This, sometimes the person before you said a different tone. Sometimes it's the way you came up. Like, not only you can come up unconfident you can come up too confident any given he'll tell you if they do like a tv's their first tv spot they go on stage the next night like hey and the crowd just doesn't buy it and then halfway through you're like but that's what's great about stand-up it's such instant humility it brings you right back down to earth when that crowd's just sitting there like you can yell at us you can pander to us we're not laughing at you sorry right that idea of, of humility you say it a couple times i saw that speech you gave you talked about it. right um is that important to you to try to find some kind of like not yeah, get carried because, away with all this stuff? Well, because what's what's less funny than an asshole who doesn't see that they're as human as everybody else? I mean, to me, nothing's less funny than somebody who's going, hey, how about people that do this instead of going, you know what? I'm an asshole too. I do too. I'm just as, I'm an egotist. I'm all the things you were talking about at the beginning of this thing. The ego, the people are just like me. All those qualities that I hate in other people if I thought I didn't have some part of them, sure. that would be insufferable to me. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like that's, to me, the basis of all writing. So you know? when, when you were saying about, about Billiam giving you that, and I said like to comedians, you're like Yoda. Right. So, I mean, I've watched all, all the comics around you. And are, are, are you aware of sort of your, your status with, with them, that, that people look at you as a touchstone for their own sanity in a way? They come to you. You're like, a, you know, in a sense, like a rabbi. Yeah, well, I mean... Do you embrace that idea? Yeah, I mean, I'm flattered by it. So, I mean, of course I embrace it because I'm flattered by it, you know? I'm I'm flattered and... You know what I mean? I don't... I mean, I don't... I don't... Uh, I mean, I'm flattered. Mostly I'm flattered by it and I just feel like, yeah, it's, it's if people feel that way, that's good. So, I mean, they could do a lot... They could pick a lot worse. Like, I really do... You take it serious. I'm saying... I take it seriously. And you I take also, it seriously. I take it seriously because I also wish... I love comedians, so I always wish 99% of comedians, I wish them the best. Sure. So those people, I have nothing but love. I want them to, I want them all to be like the best comedian. So it's like, it's not like I'm coming from a place where I'm like jealous. For whatever reason, I just love comedians. I mean, I love to be around them. I love their minds. You know what I mean? Like even, I love even all the flaws, the ego we all have. You know, I mean, I see myself in them too, but it's like most comedians, I just love them. I love them. 
And, I, and it's always been like that. Yes, they yes. love me and I love them. I always thought the documentary that you should make is, and I always, is The Table. Yeah. And but I know, mean, when Manny died, that table, let me tell you, The Table me. without Manny. Tell me. It's a different thing. There's so, a table at the Comedy Cellar in the back upstairs, right. the olive tree. And it's like, people have tried to do stuff on it, but without... What have they tried to do? People have tried to do documentaries on they it. They have? Yeah. Well, what's happened? Uh, I don't know. Uh, they just drifted away. You mean they've had cameras up there? No, but a couple of times I've seen cameras. But no, but I mean, people plan to do them. But here's the thing. Yeah, talk about when it. When Manny was the head of the Comedy Cellar, Manny was the owner, when he was the head of the table, he made it a political... And Noam, to his credit, does that now, too, with his podcast, and he's trying to do it, too. It can't just be insults at the table. That, to me, is not the table. When you say he made it a political, you mean he would engage everybody in discussion. Manny was uh, obsessed. He would just sit there, and if the table got too lowbrow, uh, Manny would just dismiss it. Like, he would almost, like, send people away. So it's got to have a combination. It's got to be, like, insults and all that banter of comedy. But it's also, Manny was big on Israel. I mean, he's, right. Israel was his number one thing, and... Just political discussion. So there was, there has to be the balance of those two sides for it to really be the table. And that's what I don't think. I think without a guy like Manny, and I think Noam was capable of doing it. But I'm yeah, saying the other night when we were both there, Noam was starting to have a conversation. That's it. So I mean, it's got to have those two sides to it, in my opinion, or else it's not the table. Right. That's what. Do you try started. to do it? Do you try to turn the thing into a no, kind of no? I mean, I haven't been there just because I've been doing my own stuff. I haven't been around for a long time, you know. You just happened to be there the other night when I, I just was happened there, to be there. That was the first time I was back in uh, a long time. So you and Alan Havy were there together, which right. both of you used to like be there. Yeah. Oh yeah. All the time, and he was just in town, so it was just a fortunate thing that you were there. Yeah, I was just there, but I'm going to be back this weekend it's, actually at the Comedy Cell. Yeah. It just felt like the old. I mean, it really did feel like. Yeah, the old but days. it's been uh, so. St- I mean, I haven't seen Alan hasn't been there, and I haven't been there in years. So your show, tell talk about what your new show is and, and what you're doing with it. Cop show? No, uh, the show you're out... Oh, Unconstitutional? Unconstitutional. Well, I've just been doing a show. It's a stand-up, you know, it's got... They, it's I mean, are you still doing it? Are you still taking it out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people should know about I've it. I've done it all over the country, and it's just basically about the con- how the Constitution created the national personality called American personality, you know, and um, how it's got the best and worst of all qualities, like the most, uh, you know, hopeful people, but also the most, like, you know self-centered people so it's like all those qualities come from the constitution when i really start reading it and don't you think that all the writing you've done and all the sort of ways in which you, you know you you say you think you failed at this stuff or it hasn't got do you think it all paid off in these two shows that have been so acclaimed um i mean can you see that because can you see that that work has paid off in some way or do you still think it's separate because you're, no, you're standing up and separate, talking but i don't i don't think it's separate but i don't think it's paid off for the amount the the amount i've 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 put into it, and the amount it's paid off. I feel is is not no. I don't feel I. I mean, I'm just being honest. I feel like it's a lot less. But I mean, but like I said, the one group. But of I mean, people, you wrote a I, Broadway show. You did write uh, a Broadway show. I wrote show. a couple. I mean, I, my other show, Irish Wake, was right. Broadway. But I'm saying, but but I'm just saying, the only people I don't feel totally confident complaining about the hours I put into it is somebody like yourself, who's screenwriters. But everybody else, I, I, mean, I, I know. But I'm saying, you guys put in. So many hours. Yes. Only, only writers could I feel like they must be like, hey, listen, I'll tell you ten worse stories than that. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, we all. Oh yeah. Look, you guys. That's have, part of the. I that's know the gig. I know. But ultimately, like all it comes down to is, um, for me, the only painful part or the part that's frustrating is if I don't have an idea that I'm excited by. I can handle the rest of it. 
Like mm-hmm. I've learned to handle rejection. Uh, I've learned to handle um, them f***ing up the movie, though that's awful. You know, I had a movie out last year Jeez. that I was miserable about uh, because it, it didn't reflect the movie I, I wanted to make. Right. right. And that's frustrating. But as long as I have the next idea that I'm passionate about, I'm happy because it's in my head and that's I'm walking right. around dancing in a way. Like, David, we just wrote this show that Showtime picked up. We're going to make the pilot this summer called Billions. And we wrote it on spec because we got tired of selling an idea to a network and then them paying you, you know, great money. They pay you to write the show and they, it goes away. So we were like, let's take the risk and write it on spec. So I think you're doing the right thing doing that. And if, yeah. you, if you still, do you still get fired up to do it? Yeah. Oh, man, I, I can't stop doing it. You got one going now? Yeah, I mean... You got a screenplay going now? Oh, no, no, just a, a show. Like and a, that's this thing, Cop Show. Well, Cop Show I'm done with for now, but I mean, I'm going to... I'm trying to get somebody to take it. Did I, you direct it? I had plenty of passes already. Um, yeah. And, and it was your idea to do it as an internet show? Or you shot 12 yeah. minutes, but you want it to be a half hour? What do you want that to I be? I want it to be whatever. I, I think it's a web show. I see it as a web show. Me too. Good. Yeah. Good. So that's how I see it as. It's a it's web a show. Great, a 12 minutes it's was really funny good amount as a of web time. Show. It was really funny. The last shot was great. Yeah. With you just sitting there, the yeah. credits rolling. I mean, I, I think you should put it, uh, you know, there's a new uh, line of thought that, you know, just put the thing up there. That's what I'm going to end up doing. I think you some, put it up there and then, and then nobody, yeah. people are going to like it and then someone will have the bright idea. Maybe. Or they won't, but at least it'll be, I mean, at least I think you present it. To the world I, I definitely at some will. point. I definitely will. Be- because what do you lose by doing that? No, exactly. I mean, that's what we'll do if, if everybody keeps passing, you know? Right? I mean, all right, so a couple more things that I just wanted to cover. W- one thing, totally random, I had written it down earlier, but one of the weird things that happened on remote control was there was this odd little character called Stud Boy. Yes. And he would come out, uh, he only, uh, like, I guess in the second season of the show, maybe. Yes. And he would just come out for, like, 30 seconds and contort himself and say, yeah, I'm Stud Boy. Yeah. And uh, and that turns out to have been Adam Adam Sandler, right? Yes. Now is that how you first met him? How did that? No, happen? I met him before that. I met him the first time he did stand up when he was seventeen. He was all cocky. He came out at the Paper Moon, which is Boston comedy, and he did stand up. And he was like just a guitar. He was just terrible. And his friends. And then he left for like three months. And he you came, met him that first night. I met him the first night, and he was you know charming guy, but he was like this seventeen year old you know kid. He left for three months, and he came back. He'd been on the road or something. And I was like, this son of a is funny. Oh, really? He got funny. It took him, you know, he had to go on the road. Maybe it was six months. But he came back and I was like, wow, this guy got really funny, you know? Like, he just needed them road legs, you know? And um, and I wasn't funny in those years either. So I don't know what the hell I was judging him. But, I'm sure you were. But, um, then, but, but then when he came on, like, he always had that very irreverent, like, it was almost like, like it was like uh, theater of the absurd. He would go out and do Stud Boy. But instead of just doing what basically, the, you know, he's a good looking kid, the stud boy. He always had to take it to one more step. <laughs> the stud boy. Yeah, like, with those crazy faces. Thing. And he did, then he started doing, he started creating these dumb characters. And Mike Armstrong, do you know him? I don't know him. He's a guy, but he used to create I, it with him. I know Hurley. I know and, a bunch oh, of yeah. Hurley, he's the greatest. So Hurley's guy. the greatest. So they would create Bossy Boy. And he would just come out in a McDonald's, like a fast food uniform. As bossy boy, only <laughs> gives so gives, and he just shut up, Ken. And these characters, like, the joke was how unrealized they were. 
bossy boy. Shut up, Ken. But, and he's just like yelling. <laughs> but did you know? So, like, did you know? Like, if you could, I wish we would see how funny you still think. Did you know, oh, uh, that guy's on the rocket ship? Yes. Yeah, I think with Sandler, everybody kind of knew. You knew. Everybody knew because he was so young. Girls loved him. And he was funny. And he was just, you know what I mean? Like, I think people just knew with a guy like him. It was interesting, you know, because you're, uh, I mean, you know, you're, you're, what, you're, both your parents were teachers? Yes. And you're a reader. Yeah. I mean, you're an intellect. I mean, you are, I'm sure you don't like the word. You're an intellectual. Sure. You read everything. You make, you think about the country and the Love world. It. And like Sandler's humor is decidedly lowbrow. Right. But what is it for you? As long as it's funny, you don't care? Well, and like, why him, does he get away with it in your mind? I love him too, but what, what is it? Yeah, because he's lovable. I mean, look, he doesn't get away with all of it. There's plenty of times I've been like, oh, but, 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 um, that stuff in particular and his stuff, like, he, his early, like you watch his first Lennon stuff, and stuff yeah. it was like this theater of the absurd, like this Ionesco types. I right. mean, maybe I'm reading too much. Oh, that's what I was going to say, you're going to call him like a Dada whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's what you're going to say, is a Dada performer? Yes. Right. But it was almost that way. Right. Boy I love that. You know, what's so funny is I said to Chelsea Peretti like, the other day, you know, Chelsea does this, you know, you know, Chelsea Peretti. Yeah, sure. She's you know, she, she does this podcast. Right. And it's, she takes these phone calls and, and um, to me, when I heard it, I really thought that she deconstructed the podcast, right. like a conscious effort at deconstructing a podcast, right, like right. almost like I wanted to take like a Derrida approach to these, which I said like, <laughs> and so I have lunch with Chelsea and I go, you know, you're really like uh, doing a whole Derrida thing. And she looked at me, she went, you are out of your mind. I have no, I'm not deconstructing anything. I'm just like trying to be funny. Hilarious. But I thought like, well, no, it's so different that she must be commenting on. But maybe she, she doesn't. meta and commenting. Look, sometimes people don't know they're commenting either. Maybe she is and she doesn't realize. I think it's a brilliant show. Like I think her podcast right. is brilliant. Um, because you know she she has this um she she has this uh I, it's not even ironic it's like post ironic <laughs> really just sort of like totally meta um obnoxious persona and um and it's so the opposite of what all the po- these emotional right, like right. oh let me get inside your soul right so you look at Sandler and you thought to yourself this is Dolly on a stage <laughs> basically yeah. I thought it was kind of like, well, maybe Ernie Kovacs. Right. But I mean, he definitely had uh, that element to his stuff where he would just be like, uh, he'd be he'd be taking it to another level. I mean, he would do characters. He used to do this character in L.A. and he did it on some of the local L.A. shows named Polly Fector. And it was just this guy who's just like, there was something wrong with him, but it was like he would just commit to it so fully. And it was so, I mean, Judd Apatow knows it well, too. He has it. Judd actually kept the tapes. Oh, really? And it's Sandler doing Polly Fector. And it was just this guy named Polly, which is already horrible. <laughs> and it was just this horrible, discre- uh, but it was really funny the way he would do it. No, I thought, listen, when he did Opera Man and stuff, I thought it was the funniest yeah. thing I ever saw in my life, yeah. for sure. But you are, you know, but it's interesting to me because your world is so highbrow in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. And yet you embrace what he does and what Spade does. Yeah. And you, like, somehow, those guys have a pass for you, it seems like. Yeah, well, like, people pass, doesn't everybody? Sure, that's very. Uh, it's very generous uh, of you. Well, look, I know you got to go. There's a lot more that I wanted to cover. Um, people should go and see uh, Const- Unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. And oh, you know what I want to ask you? Who's your Mount Rushmore? If you had to list four comedians, who's your Mount Rushmore comedians? I mean, the cliches: Carlin, Pryor, um, Lenny Bruce. Even though everybody's like, oh, Lenny Bruce ain't that funny. I'm like, yeah, because you're watching something from 1957. Of course he doesn't seem that funny. Dude, for the Vaughn Meter line alone, he's the funniest man who ever lived. <laughs> right. And if people don't know what that is, go yeah. look up the Vaughn Meter joke. 
And um, and um, is Woody on there for you? Not, no, not the stand-up. I mean, he was a brilliant stand-up, but he's not on there for so me. So who would be the other? Who'd be either Jackie Mason or Pat Cooper, maybe? You know. Oh, that's great. Angry, difficult guys. Difficult, but I mean, look at Jackie Mason. I mean, this guy showed up. I remember him coming to the cellar and me going, oh, this Catskills guy, why is he here? Like 1987. I mean, the first time he was, you saw him there. Right, and he was just hanging out. And I was like, this guy thinks he's a big shot. He's hanging out at the cellar. Like, like he was walking around like he's gonna, like he was somebody. I was going, this guy's like a Catskills guy. What is it? And then I saw a show like a year later. I was like, Jesus Christ. Huh. He's a brilliant genius. Huh. And Pat Cooper, just because Pat Cooper was so funny off the cuff, you know, like... Right. And of so course, Don Rickles. I mean, Don Rickles is, you know, Don Rickles is a guy that, once again, you got to give him a pass on the material. Right. His material but is you abominable. Think the life, right. But, but it doesn't he's matter. so funny. Right. Hilarious, despite the material. Look at Joan Rivers. I mean, she's like 79. Maybe she's 80. Right. But she's so, I mean, she's just quit. She was on some show the other night. And she's making jokes about like, not, uh, the Holocaust, Fallon. She right. But she made some joke that was yeah, the trendy. Holocaust. Oh, no. About John Hamm. You know, just as she knew John Hamm, she knew the reference. It wasn't right. the John Hamm joke, but it was like that. I mean, she references John Hamm, his penis. Right. The fact that she's still just right, the fact that's that hilarious. she's still in the game. I was like, yeah. That she still understands the memes of the time. Right. Right. Even if she wouldn't know the right, memes exa- exactly. That she's still there. Yeah. Well, all right, man. Listen, thank you for doing this. Uh, I appreciate Thanks, it. Brian. I know uh, you know there are certain podcasts maybe you don't do, but it's nice that uh, thank you. I'm so glad you came one. out. I thank appreciate you. it. And uh, in person, I got to say, Jay Moore's impression is even more impressive. It's unbelievable. Like I could have stuck him in here, and it would have almost been the same. It's unbelievable. It's so good that you know you can never hear when somebody's him doing an impression of you. Even I'm like, wow. You are right. Because for years, people try to do me. They do like that. He does my breathe. He does my breathing. He understands he does- how you think. Yeah, I know. It's the weirdest thing, right? All right, Jay. Shout out to you. Hey, guys, follow Colin on Twitter. I didn't ask him about Twitter because it's all he gets to talk about these days. But uh, follow Colin uh, and uh, follow me. I'm Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Thanks. Uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes or. Go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.